Good morning, Bread of Life. I pray the Lord's grace and love and peace be with you. Last week, if you listened to the sermon, you'll know that I plan to preach a series on the Ten Commandments. I think a series in video is probably easier to watch than maybe other ways of taking in sermons. And I want to today just introduce this series of the Ten Commandments with three parts. So I want to talk about our reservations to the law. Like, why do we have to keep this stuff if we're Christians? I thought it was Jewish law. Um, second, talk about the commands and commandments themselves, you know, how they're numbered, which isn't as obvious as you might think, why these and not others. Uh, and then finally, to say something about why it could be so urgent and enlightening for us to, to return to these as a Christians in a moment um, not just of um, coronavirus and pandemic, but of political tensions and polarization in our country. So I call us back to these laws to be under them, to study them as the word from God. We have to begin with our reservations. Christians are um, uniquely um, reticent or hesitant to think that we're under the commandments. Or as I said last week, we were nine commandment Christians and not the Sabbath, but we're not sure how seriously to take them. C.S. Lewis was fond of saying, I know they're true when I start making excuses why I don't have to do them. So there's this uh, reservation, this hesitancy, and it comes from a couple of places. Uh, this sense um, that's clear in the Gospels that are from Paul that we're um, in an age of gospel and not of law. Um, this is made most famous by Martin Luther in the 16th century. And he's opposing a kind of works righteousness and says, look, we're under grace, we're under love, we're not under the law. And so in making this opposition, he's trying to draw apart two kinds of ways of life. But if you actually study Luther, um, it's not so simple at all. What law and grace mean is quite different than what we might imagine. Luther, uh, for one, uh, wrote in his um, pastoral life a commentary or um, a catechism for studying the Ten Commandments. So if you were going to be baptized or confirmed, you had to study this pretty extensive catechism. What do the laws command? What do they prohibit? What do they envision? This is kind of a beautiful document. Calvin, John Calvin, um, only a few years later, does the same thing. And then uh, Thomas Cramer in the Anglican tradition uh, puts them in the liturgy right before the confession. So these reformers who are recovering the good news of salvation by faith and not by works, nevertheless put the Ten Commandments right in the middle of their liturgies and in their Christian life. That same Luther who popularized this idea of uh, grace over law uh, says in his introduction to Galatians, his prologue or his preface, uh, we're saved by faith and not by works. But this faith is a busy, vibrant, and active thing. The faith isn't powerless. The law uh, keeping it doesn't earn salvation. But when we are granted salvation by faith, we can't help but keep those things which God desires of us. So I'm calling us back into these laws. I want to make one more illustration with Jesus. Doesn't Jesus uh, seem to pull away the law from our life and give us this life of love and freedom? It's a famous passage in John 10 that's often cited in this uh, regard because it's one of these several places where Jesus engages Jewish legal experts. In this case, it's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Jesus, what must I do to be saved, to inherit eternal life? And this is Jesus' answer. You know the commandments. Uh, do not 
um, commit adultery, honor your father and mother, do not steal, do not lie. And the young man answers, Lord, I've done all these things from my youth up. And so Jesus answers him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your things and give them to the poor. And the young man goes away sorrowful, Mark tells us, because he had many possessions. Jesus, if you can catch it, has turned uh, this conversation to coveting, the hardest one to keep. Have you never desired more than you need? Have you ever desired your neighbor's goods, his wife, his beauty, his intelligence? The young man goes away sorrowful, for we can't keep the law. But Jesus here is affirming it. You know this is the way to eternal life. Paul himself, even though he calls us to lives of faith, in all of his letters, calls the church to acts of law-keeping. Adultery, he mentions constantly, sexual promiscuity, idolatry, covetousness, theft, lying. He says in Ephesians 4, let the thief steal no more, but let him work so that he may give. Jesus, uh, Paul is not anti-law. Um, he's about people who are by faith that come to God to be saved. And so um, I want us, at least as we come to the Ten Commandments, to recognize that there's this powerful American sentiment that's antinomian, meaning it's anti-law, that's popular in our country more than any in Christian nations, but that it doesn't have the support of history or scripture. It's built very much on a kind of American ethos of freedom that's anti-law. So I draw us into these now to think about these Ten Commandments that Jesus and Paul and the church offered to us as part of our Christian journey of faith. Okay, so now we come to the Ten Commandments. Why ten? Why study these ten as apart from others? That is a Lutheran scholar of all things who, um, uh, who's thinking about the law, who thinks of it this way. Um, God gives us these two commandments to love God and to love our neighbor, right? Because love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul says this in Romans. But we're inadequate. We, we are not capable of loving in that way. We redefine love to our own advantage, to our own selfish pleasures and desires. And so we need laws to expand upon that. You might just think of the, um, the legal uh, scholar who comes to Jesus and says, uh, and asks Jesus the same question about the greatest of commandments, to love your God with all your heart and soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But what does the legal sage say in Luke? But who is my neighbor? So it's, it's this um, kind of way that we can take love and know what it means, but then not fulfill it in the very most urgent and obvious demands in the life that faces us. So even though these two commandments fulfill all the law, they fail to address and to correct for our own biases, our own selfishness, our own narrowness of mind. And so God gives these ten commandments that are connected to the commandments of love. Those two great ones were in the Old Testament as well. But the ten do this beautiful kind of memorable job of expanding on the two. What does it mean to love God? To honor him with your speech, to honor him with your desires, to honor him with what you make and what you hope for. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Well, to speak well, to honor his possessions, to honor his spouse, not to covet his goods or desire to be like him. So these Ten Commandments move out. But it only takes a minute to realize they don't answer all of the kind of ethical dilemmas and challenges we face day to day. And so there's this expanded version of hundreds of laws that Moses gives the Israelites. 
They address things like social justice, poverty, uh, refugees, nature, animals, um, land rights. And they expand further and further down, but they're not memorable. They're easily forgotten, but the 10 stand as a symbol of all those other obligations and things that we do in our culture for those around us. So I draw us to those 10. I've rarely used them in the liturgy in our Sunday morning worship, and I intend to repent of that because I've seen the significance of what they do in this place, expanding our vision of love from two commands into the world against my tendency to make love fit my own desires. Okay, so a little more about these ten. They stand out in this way. They're the only law God spoke directly to Israel. He says in Deuteronomy, I spoke out of the midst of the fire and wrote with my finger on stones. These other hundreds of commands that Moses gets, he gets on the mountain by himself in a tent while God dictates and it's written on a scroll. The tablets go in the Ark of the Covenant to travel with the Lord's presence. The scroll goes outside of the, of the um, ark to travel with Israel. Both have this liturgical position in the church, but it's the 10 that are central and guide Israel. In fact, they're the only set of laws that's repeated in the Old Testament. All 10 are in Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy 5, and Exodus 20, with two very slight differences that I'll mention. So there's good reason to focus on these 10, not because they're all we need, but because they're symbolic, they're visionary of our life and our calling. Okay, one last thought about these commandments is the numbering of them. This will help me want to turn it now to some practical ways of thinking about the importance of the law. There's three ways of numbering them. This is because when they're given in the original Hebrew language, there are no numbers in the text. In fact, they're not called Ten Commandments, they're called Ten Words. And so they're numbered differently by different communities. The Protestant community we're from, you know, has the three about honoring God and then the Sabbath and then the um, six more about honoring our neighbor, um, murder, theft, adultery, lying. Lutherans, though, and Catholics make a slightly different um, take on the law. They combine the first two. You shall have no other gods, and you shall not make any idol or bow down and worship them. And there's an obvious link. There's language that's shared between the two, even into the third. But the, the two really do go well together. So there's a good argument for that. I don't think one's right. They have a different emphasis. The uh, Lutherans and the Catholics will then take the Tenth Commandment and divide it into two. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, and then don't covet his things and his goods. So you can see these distinctions of um, how I honor my neighbor differently with his goods and his wife, and the emphasis on God being at the forefront of the Ten Commandments. Now, um, I'll mention one more as I uh, kind of lead us into final thoughts and some reflections, is that the Jews, the Israel, um, ancient Israelites, their first commandment is what we would have called our prologue, the prologue of the commandments. And it goes like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. You know that it's repeated as a refrain all throughout the Old Testament. But notice what it does to the commandments. It centers them in a story, a narrative of Israel's past. To have been slaves, to have been oppressed, and to have been loved, and to have been redeemed and gifted with the land. These commands are not advice of a friend. They're not seven highly effective habits of successful people. They're not instructions to put together your IKEA furniture. They are the words of the infinite and only God who has called you to his own and redeemed you. And as your king, he bids you to keep his law. 
It's authoritative. It's Israelites recognize this. It's a response to a gift. It's our, um, to keep these laws, to honor them, because our Savior King has given them to us and given us a life of plenty and of freedom. And that's really what I want to focus on because the law issues us, gives us freedom. We think entirely the opposite. If anywhere in America more than anywhere else, freedom is the opposite of law. But that's actually not true. It's not true of what we know about freedom. Think about if you're a parent, um, for example, your children are home from um, school for months. Now imagine when they had all this freedom where they used to enjoy some structure and be away from home. It's insane. They, they have no rhythms. When do they get up? When do I start my homework? There's no teacher ordering their day. They're unhappy. Mom's unhappy. Dad's unhappy. Because there's no purpose. There's no order. There's unlimited freedom, but that's not true freedom. It's unhappy freedom. The first job when I joined the military, um, in the Air Force, I was in medical acquisitions, acquiring medical material. But I was in a waiting list for school, so I had no training. And so for four months, I read laws and regulations and policies. I did not understand a thing that I did. And it was miserable work. I didn't have a purpose. And so I would wake up sad to go to work because I think eight hours I have to sit there or more and do nothing that gives me any sense that I've accomplished something. But then to be trained and get a job where I knew I'm contributing to something, that was freedom, my gifts, a sense of purpose. And that's what the law does. It gives us a sense of freedom in the sense of knowing what we're supposed to do. When there's order, we enjoy freedom. It's a paradox that's hard for us to get our heads around. But it's exactly how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. Live as free people, though you are servants of God. To serve this God, to give your life to him, that's true freedom. What you think is freedom in your mind is self-destructive. If you know the Anglican liturgy, the uh, collect for peace in morning prayer, it comes up in our year at different points, but it reads like this. God, the author of peace and lover of concord, to know you is eternal life and to serve you is perfect freedom. The collect is picking up on Peter or this image from early in Exodus. To live under the law is true freedom. To live in Egypt is slavery. To live in idolatry is slavery. We have to submit ourselves to this idea that to be free is not the, quite the American vision to do whatever I want. It's to become the creature that God made me to be. There's happiness. To become what I was made to be. Well, here's what I want to bring this to bear on our political moment, on our life in America today. I'm thinking about this and how freedom is so abstract and shallow and um, lacking content and it fails to do any good work in our nation, in my opinion. But many are writing on this, theologians, secular scholars, historians. Uh, some analysis done in the last few years about these uh, really polarized moments in America. Think for a moment about this. The alt-right, this um, white nationalist, older generation, largely white men, who are um, adamant about a very conservative, a very white vision of our nation with God at its head. And then you have on this, um, the far left, the cancel culture, the pure liberalism of our culture who want absolute freedoms and rights for everyone. 
two things these two have in common. Um, they're both very nationalist in the way they speak about the identity of a nation. And two, neither one goes to church. The far left is young and either ceased going to church, a huge number of them, or have never been to church. They define themselves against the faith that we celebrate and know. The far right doesn't go to church either. They stopped going decades ago. And so these people have ideas of justice and love and freedom that they return and spill over in one another's own kind of sound boxes, but they have no connection to the liturgy of Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This freedom is not infinite, it has a story. It makes a huge difference to us. Let me just illustrate this in Europe. There's a European historians and sociologists writing about this kind of growing um, opposition, the polarization of our countries on left and right and political parties, the lack of unity. Marcello Pera is a, a politician in Italy who's written a book about it, about calling ourselves Christians again. He's a secularist. He's not calling Italy to be a Christian nation. But he is saying that Italy needs to relearn what love and justice mean because they have no force or power or any ability to unite the nations in Europe anymore because they don't want the religious heritage that gave those terms their meaning. He's not alone in calling for this. Paris says this, he says, if, if Europe has simply become a melting pot, or if it's not able to become a melting pot, it's merely become a container that is unable to unite its contents because it lacks the energy. We have great diversity, but do we have unity? And Para identifies the absence of the doctrine of the incarnation and the doctrine of being made in the image of God. Rights are not for me, they're not for my happiness and for my own privilege. They're things that I'm obliged to care for my neighbor because he's made in the image of God, because he's beautiful and she's beautiful and worthy of the dignity of God who would become flesh and give himself for us. You see here, the law tells the story about why we keep these things, because we're loved and made creatures of love. We're made people to reconcile, not to stand on polarized ends of our world. I'm not calling America to be a Christian nation from my pulpit or my upstairs bedroom, but I am calling the church to relearn its story, to know the power of these laws, how they guide us to be people of love that can give true order, that can find unity and justice not in ideas, but in Jesus Christ who would live among us to make us one.